Hello all. Well, this one, what can I say? This one was astonishing, rousing, sometimes confusing and requiring uh, a lot of re-listens on my part. But most of all, I think this conversation was special, the kind you are grateful to have been a part of. At first, given my guest was a master practitioner of Zen, I wasn't sure there was going to be all that much to discuss. So there was some apprehension on my part. But as it turned out, there was a lot to discuss. The Buddhist crowd will get a ton from this. On the other hand, many non-Buddhists, Christians, pagans, traditionalists, radical nihilists, empiricists, rationalists, Nietzscheans, Kantians, Neo-Kantians, Heideggerarians, Spenglerists, occultists, scientists, solarists, Apollonians, accelerationists, black pillars, red pillars, white pillars, clear pillars, and uh, of course the esoteric knowledgeists. The list goes on with various ists, ers, and ands. Simply put, those who enjoy musing obsessively on the nature of things, or are going cross-eyed trying to pin down life through the prism of some sort of lunatic or other construct, well, this conversation may well be for you. Actually, I have nothing against uh, lunatic constructs, just to qualify. Maybe you've taken a position at some point that no one's really managed to pin down this beast yet. And when they did, either offered a kind of destructive fatalism or perhaps never really managed to offer any concrete steps to take. I myself can relate. For many years I tried on different philosophical and scientific outlooks like jackets. And really, that's all they were in the end. Jackets, usually merely providing a fashionable covering up of the worst of my instinct or my disconnection from it. I think a kind of radical honesty is required here. In the modern age, I really feel that we are mostly petty beings with petty aims, usually covering up our psychic incompleteness. And for sure, this is really the case for me, and I think this is a pretty pertinent point, given what's happening all around us at the moment. So I'm assuming we've kind of all been there to some degree. So you may appreciate, as I did, a vastly different angle from someone who is deeply engaged with the world as it is, Someone who, through vigorous practice and discipline, has confronted the world of becoming through what I call, and I qualify these as my own words and not necessarily endorsed by Peter, the anti-philosophy of Zen. What I have heard described succinctly as the action of no action. These are all things we go into here. My guest today is Peter Bruiser. He started Zen practice in the late 80s with the Kanzian Sangha in the Netherlands while he was working there in computer science. His first teacher was Geno Roshi, who, as we will hear, helped him along the way. After moving back to Australia, he briefly studied with the Korean Kwan Um School of Zen. And then, as we will see in a rather moving recounting, met his master, Hogan Yamahata, in a session near Byron Bay. Since then, he's been studying under Hogan-san's guidance and became a Dharma successor in 2008. I personally have engaged in Zazen and Peter's circle on many occasions in the past and was always vastly impressed with him as one of those rare individuals some of us are privileged enough to encounter in our lifetimes. And I hope you'll be able to engage in this also through this podcast on Zen and awareness. Enjoy. Yeah, I remember when I was starting out and I um, 
when I first started practicing Zen, there was um, uh, I was in the Netherlands at the time, and there was a senior student coming down to Nijmegen where I was, and you know, once every couple of weeks, and and he he said, you know, I asked him about this, you know, because he was um, training with a with a master, he had a teacher, and I said, well, how do you, how do you know? How, how do you know? That he or she is is the one, and he he said, "Well, you just know," mm. and um, something like that. And um, and I, I I I didn't really, uh, I don't think I understood really what he meant until I met my master. And then uh, I, uh, you know, I remember, you know, I went to this um, session, um that was down at. Uh, Ballina, a beautiful location, East Ballina, um, Shelley Beach. Uh, it's in this Anglican place that was just overlooking uh, the beach and um, I, I'd never heard anything you know, about Hawkinson. I just sent a sort of flyer in Byron advertising one of the retreats and then I sort of turned up and wasn't sure, you know, about anything and I was sort of sitting, you know, the, the Zendo was pretty full and, sitting towards the back and sort of came in and then he he just sat down and then he put his hands in gusho and um, he said, dear friends, and it just went right through me. And um, I was scheduled, uh, this, this retreat was broken up into two bits, so I think the first part was going to be in Ballina and then they're going to move it to some other place, so I just did the first part. But I remember when I was in the car and to leave I was I was crying then I, I understood uh, you know so I've been incredibly blessed in this life to be able to get close to someone like that and then have such a uh, it's it's the uh, it's the most fundamental relationship in that I've had in my life it's to see something is just so precious, and then also with it comes this because um, uh, I've been with him, and he gave me permission to teach. Uh, this responsibility to, um, in whatever way, according to the limitations of my understanding or whatever, to try and share what he shared with me through it, mm-hmm. and, and then as with others. Yeah. Sure, um, sure. So it's a it's it's a yeah a really really big big responsibility, but one so so fundamental to my life. Absolutely, I, I think um, it's interesting. One one way I heard it phrased is you know it may may not be in your karma you know this lifetime, but uh, you, you never know. And and obviously it sounds like it was in yours. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, yeah uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, and um, but I think that. People, people find connections with teachers or in, in different ways. Um, yeah, I think this one, I guess in this lineage, it really, it really, really um, depends or not depends, but what happens is the Dharma is transmitted by the such uh, intimate relationships. Because uh, I remember when my master said, so when we have Doksan on one-on-one interviews, uh, he said, "This is where the uh, this is for Dharma transmission." 
and and this is where you you go in and then we we need to leave our egos and all of that stuff outside the door so that we we're open mutually to each other uh, and it's, it's such a I had such fundamental, you know, really, really important special exchanges with him and not always in the formal, like in retreats, formal doxan or one-on-one interview, but I used to visit his place down in Byron and then, you know, we'd sit down and and we'd talk and, yeah, sometimes with a glass of wine, you know, and then I always remember these, these I'd turn up and, it's it, it you know, I felt time and time again it was like fifteen minutes had passed and you look and it's two o'clock in the morning uh, and we we just just discuss just really fun, fundamental questions about life and dharma and, and things like that and then like I said you know, I'm I'm just sort of humbled by it all that I um, was able to get you know, such intimate access to so, uh, like that but he was really close to his master too uh, Roshi Sama. Had a closer and and Roshi Summer was um, his master. He, my my master Hawkinson, his um, sort of grandmaster's uh, Harada Sagako Roshi. He had a many, many because he uh, he was teaching for a long time. He had many Dharma successes and but uh, Roshi Summer was one uh, came later, and uh, they had a you know really really special intimate relationship. So when Rada Sagaku Roshi died. It was Roshi Sama that prepared his body. Uh, when I visited Roshi Sama's um, um, uh, temple in Japan, there was a big, still a big photograph of um, Rada Sagaku Roshi there in the in the Doksan room, a huge one, like a big portrait. It's you know that through those really really intimate connections, this is how um, this is how it works. Yeah, and it's not a it's something very organic. So each one has their, even though I can see through my master's master and the master before, I can see some com- common elements to the teachings, but the the Dharma has also its organic, each time its own organic freshness. It has to, has to be that way. Otherwise it turns into doctrine. Uh, so based on the... Yeah. The individual's understanding it it, it 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 flowers and takes root. So in a way, it's almost like given given a place, given guidance, but it's given freedom to grow in 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 on the basis of the practice experience of the individual in question, which yeah. gives it yeah. uh, its ultimate meaning. That's interesting. I was I was talking to a lady. Um, Monk at the last session in June, and I, I must apologize, I forget her name. Um, she was describing that um, in Japan, it was her sense that Zen had become somewhat, you know, stultified and perhaps doctrinal, like what you're talking about. And that um, the fact that it, it had gone to the United States and Australia meant that it, it had kind of regained that vibrancy that I think you're, you're talking about now a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think that could have been Genko, I think. I, yeah, I think that's it, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot that um, I agree with what you said. Like when I uh, visited my master in uh, Japan at his temple and I remember once we were sitting out in the front steps of the main hall there and, and I asked him about Zen in Japan. He said the, the roots of Zen in Japan are almost all rotten. 
now. And uh, w- what's happening is that that's why he enjoyed going outside because uh, he, he found uh, students and practitioners in Australia. He was going to Spain. He was going to England. That, that, that um, there was this, uh, this sincerity in amongst those pra- practitioners to really uh, practice it in, in a way and an enthusiasm uh, that he, he didn't sort of encounter much in Japan. And he was very quite critical of the um, what had happened, you know, the Soto School in Japan. It, it, it became, it's become this big school. It's become an organisation. And um, it had lost... It, ultimately, it's based on this, um, this uh, direct experience of a, of, a, of life. Uh, sort of monks were just um, training so they could take over temples and were lazy. So he, in his lifetime, he's seen it um, decline. It's, I think there were a number of um, Zen masters um, that went to the West as it was opening, yeah, then the flower power era, um, Shunri Suzuki was one, and there were there were um, uh, what was the other one? There was um, I can't remember his name. He also came to the West, and um, they were finding a real enthusiasm to try and um, embrace it. I remember Shunri Suzuki. He he was moved to San Francisco because there was a large Japanese community there. And I remember reading his book and he was saying that when he went there, the Japanese people weren't only interested in sort of him doing certain ceremonies, essentially acting like a priest. But mm-hmm. all the, you know, in that San Francisco, the flower parrot, you know, the, um, the hippies, they, they weren't interested in that. They, they were interested in meditation. And he became really, really um, committed to try and support that. In in there, and so there was a real something sprouting, very very fresh, uh, as as the Dharma was being transplanted to a new new place, and then uh, my master did the same here. So your master being uh, Hogan's son, I see. And what's his story? What's his lineage and and training? You you mentioned Soto. Yeah. Um. So he he, he grew up, and I remember him saying when he was a young boy, like his his um father died very young. And he, I remember him telling once in a, store, in a talk that he was a young boy and he went to his mum asking about his father because he noticed all his friends had fathers. His, his mother said, well, no, your, your father's dead, right? And then he said he remembered it as a young boy. Something went through him that, you know, something really, like this question like, you know, okay, dead, you know. And, and so he wanted to know what is, what is, what is life really? So, yeah, so in high school he, he started, he saw a sign for practising Zazen and he tried. But he had this, this question, what is, what is the real meaning of life? And uh, he, he started reading books and he went to various teachers. But usually, usually they weren't, you know, he just wasn't satisfied. And he kept looking, uh, looking around and then he, he told a story like when, um, he went somewhere and then his um, his master, the which would eventually become his master, Roshi Sama, was there and he said the way uh, when he saw Roshi Sama walking, there was something really quite uh, different about him, the way almost like this, this stability or the way he walked. And he, there was something that really attracted 
you know, him to it. And then he went up to him and, and presented that question. What, what is like? And then he, uh, the response was, uh, this is a typical Zen response. Uh, Roshi Sama grabbed him by the collars, you know, his jacket, and really grabbed and firmed him. He said, this is it. Like, and, but he said this, this wasn't a canned answer. He said his whole his whole being, uh, Roshi Sama's being was answered. Life itself was answering this question. This is it. And he he was deeply shocked by that. Uh, and um, and then uh, they parted. But and then he, he sort of was left you know, left with it. And then sometime later. He, he was travelling and then he noticed that he was nearby um, where Roshi Samba's temple, temple was in Mbama. And he went there and um, he came again. And then it was just about, I think Sashin had just started or was about to start and Roshi Samba, he gave him the same question. And this time he said, well, how, how about you sit to Sashin with, with this question? And he, he gave him the koan mu in order to practice with it. And then you know, on the, I think it was on the fifth night. I can't remember the night. I think it was the fifth night. They, they, they sit in the graveyards in the middle of the night and then he was practicing Mu and, and suddenly the whole universe became Mu. And then he, he's, he, he, uh, his question was resolved in life. From there he he kept practicing with uh, Roshama and in those days... In those early days, there weren't many people at the at his practice center. Later, Roshizama became popular in the West, and a lot of Western practitioners went there. But and then Hawkinson's practice there, and then he he visited uh, you know, many many masters, sent different types of Zen masters, and also he went to Sri Lanka, and he was uh, sitting in the um, south of Sri, Sri Lanka, and this is not Zen practice. Um, this is other other forms of Buddhism he was practicing there. So he tried many many different things, and then um, he eventually uh, he was given permission to teach by his master, and then he sort of went out on uh, on his own. And um, what was interesting is that he had a friend, an Aikido master that um, that he befriended, and then um, the Aikido master had said at one point, he said, "In ten years' time, I'll take you to the West." And then uh, Hogan-san forgot about it. And ten years later, this Aikido master sort of knocking on the door of his temple. He said, yeah, I'm here. It's time to go. <laughs> and then they got on a plane and then um, he, he, his first uh, um, session was in uh, in England and where the Aikido master was training the practitioners in Aikido. And Hogan-san was doing the uh, meditation. And from that, um, uh, people sensed the, the quality of his being. Uh, very quickly, so there from there came invitations um, to you know, um, sit in, you know, to do meditation retreats in Sashin, and it just sort of went from there. And he, he ended up going to a lot of different places in Europe, you know, England and the Netherlands, and um, he had groups in Spain and Portugal, and and then eventually he made it to Australia. I think it might have been in the mid eighties. His first sure. first Sashin was down in Bellingen in the mid eighties, and then. People down there had friends up in Byron, and then uh, he ended up sort of being based in Byron for um, uh, you know a couple of decades. He's now he's now right. moved to Spain. So I, I understand you 
kind of had, had, had a similar route. So you um, were practicing Zen in the late 80s. You mentioned in, in uh, Holland. What was your own path? Uh, why, why did you uh, feel compelled to uh, practice Zen? So there was, there was something that happened when, um, after I'd sort of graduated from university, I, I'd, I'd done computer science and I was working in the IT industry. And I remember um, where I was living, I was living at my parents' place at the time and the, um, the place we were working was on the other side of the city. And I had the, you know, I was well, play, well paid and I had a sports car and you know, all, all the trappings, I guess you would say, of, uh, you know, the, um, someone that was earning well with a career that was booming at those times in the IT industry. And then I just remember once that I, I drove from home and the drive was, was quite long. It probably would have been about 40 minutes or three quarters of an hour to get somewhere. And when I got into my work, I suddenly realised that I didn't have any recollection at all about the journey from home so because I was constantly thinking about things. And, and, and that bothered me because I, I, I just wonder, what is it that I'm missing out on? If I, if I can't recollect anything of that what maybe i'm missing out on something and i thought okay well it, it's it's my mind i've got and i'm thinking too much and my mind's way too unruly i so i looked up the yellow pages which were still had those things in those days and and, and i'd heard about i don't know how i'd heard about zen i said well okay what i really need to do is i need to sort of learn Zen meditation, and that's a training where I can really train my mind to focus. And so I, 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 won't, I won't be like that. And so that's how I entered into it. And then I, I, I remember I called someone up and I went to their place and I don't remember which group it was. And um, I spoke to someone there and they gave me some instructions about how to sit in meditation. He said, well, you, when you can sit quietly for 20 minutes, then you can... Um, you can come and join the group. And so I went home and tried it and I just failed. And so I, uh, I just sort of gave up on it. And then um, uh, not, not too long after that, I um, went overseas to do my master's and PhD. And uh, I went to a, it was a Catholic, it's a Catholic university of Nijmegen, um, which a Catholic university has a religion de- uh, religious department. And I just remember there was a sign of you know, a, a course in Zen meditation and, I saw that and I thought, well, maybe maybe that's what I need is the course sounds like something structured. And so next to the universe, university, there was this disused uh, monastery with a really nice large room. I remember with, uh, I still recall the smell of tatami when I, when, I, when I went in there. And then so this, this course ran for, I don't know, a number of weeks. And then um, that, that provided me with, I guess, the structure and, and in order to start to develop a sitting practice so that my body could get used to sitting in zazen and also the the mental side of it. And then there were other Zen groups that were using um, that monastery and I just noticed. And then when the course had finished, um, I, uh, I, I joined another one of these groups and um, that was the Kamsion Sangha, which is... Um, the head teacher was Genpo Mertzel, who's um, famous or infamous, depending on how you view him in the West. Uh, and 
he had a number of senior students that would come down, and then I practice, and then I, I uh, started from there. I, I did that, and then I do it one day, and then uh, I, um, I, I started attending uh, longer uh, sessions, uh, and and, th- and then sure. Sure. that's how I entered into it. That's it's interesting. Um that you would find a Zen class advertised at a Christian university. I guess the two are not necessarily in conflict. And, you know, there's a number of books expounding on similarities, but I, I wouldn't say they're exactly the same. I mean, I came from a place, of, you know, as we were saying before, a more doctrinal perspective in my own life. Um, it's One of the things I wanted to talk about is there is a difference between Zazen or, or Zen, sorry, and, and and Buddhism probably, but also um, Buddhism and Christianity. I suppose Buddhism is is, is an experiential path, uh, metaphysical enlightenment, whereas Christianity and other uh, Semitic uh, theological outlooks uh, rely on that kind of idea of salvation. Do you see them as opposed or different, or are they getting at the same thing from a you know a different angle? This is a really big question, and then. It can be you know, answered in different ways. I think what sort of what I find uh, the most, I guess, prominent in you know, the way you phrase the question was this salvation. Uh, salvation is you know to be saved, S- saved, saved from what? When when you look at, let's just use that as a way to try and um, compare the two. So when one of the one of the really inevitable aspects of uh, Zen practice is uh, is to see your ego, uh, our ego, we have, and all its uh, associated uh, fixations, its stories, its complaints, its judgments. It's uh, this this sense of self that we explicitly or implicitly are always carrying around. It's, it's the thing that's centre stage in our lives and this is through which we usually interact uh, with every, everything around us. And um, now you were on a longer session. One, one of the things is um, sitting there, you uh, inevitably must be confronted with um, your ego your ego will enter uh, into practice. Am I doing this right? Or why am I here? Oh, this hurts. Uh, it's complaints, um, the frustrations, the resistance, or the fantasies. Uh, all sorts of things are happening. And so salvation is, in, uh, is to be free from that uh, because this, this, this um, egocentric entity uh, is really um, a cause of uh, suffering not only to ourselves, to others. It's also the the root cause of why we feel separated, why we have this feeling there's a me here and then there's a world out there, subject uh, standing in relation to object. I remember Krishnamurti, um, there was a, so like an Indian sage, he had a great expression, he said that all the world's misery Lies, lies in the space between subject and object. So we, we need to deal with it. And uh, when I first started practising, 
I thought okay that enlightenment was the is is the key. Okay, so this is this is the magic bullet that's going to get rid of it because I, I there was something in me that sort of realised that I need to I need to deal with this ego. So when I started practice, I thought, and so I I, I said okay, the big, what I've got to do is get become enlightened as soon as possible, and then problem solved. I don't need to worry about it anymore. But uh, it, it's not it's not like that. So it's it's not like sitting on your cushion like a caterpillar and suddenly the light goes on and then you become this butterfly and fly off. So through through practice, we we start to uh, develop uh, sensitivity for this this ego, our egos. So what triggers it? Also, the, we we develop this capacity to. So even when it's arising to. Um, notice it's arising, there is this background awareness, this awakened silence in, in the background that through, through our practice, somehow it, it's, not, it's not that we create it. What happens is this, this, this background, this background awareness or this, this uh, background awakened silence is, 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 has the ability to watch all of this. And so... What this happens in, we start to develop some sort of understanding of what it is. And, so, and sometimes what happens, what can happen is a, like a grace. Suddenly that, that sense of self that steps aside for whatever reason. And then uh, just uh, when we're in Zazen, just this one breath, we just breathe very, very simply. There's, there's no agendas anymore. There's no, no, nothing to struggle. There's no resistance to anything. Ah, just this, just this one breath uh, arriving now. Something so simple, but this is a manifestation. This is life arriving as us. So we're being breathed as into, into life, as life, but not as a body, as a, as a, as a newly arriving awareness. So then this, such an experience is uh, unified. So there is no, there is no subject, object, anything. There is no, it's subjectively empty. So this sense of self is for, by a grace is no longer present. And so we directly experience what's on offer. We, our being is that, what is uh, on offer. And so we're, we're free. So this is a salvation. And so it may be in, I believe in, um, you, know, you know, I know something of the mystical uh, traditions in like Christianity and one of my colleagues at work uh, is a devout, um, you know, Shiite Muslim who um, sort of studies a lot, a lot of the masters. He, there, there is similar sort of descriptions of these it's quintessentially these sort of experiences. They're, you might call them a divine experience. Or experience. There, there is something, what it is, is our normal uh, sense of, our normal separated uh, um, interaction with the world is, is changed dramatically. And uh, so I believe that this, such de- dealing with this ego, is central to salvation. If we want to be freed, 
this mm. is this this must be involved. This must be studied. Yeah. Uh, Zen Master Dogen had a wonderful line to uh, to to, to uh, practice the way is to uh, study this self. To f- study the self is to forget the self. It seems in uh, Western philosophy, particularly, there's a there's a huge Im- uh, emphasis on language and speaking and blabbering and conceptualization. Um, in fact, most of European philosophy, you know, you just have these walls of text trying to uh, nail down um, how to exist in the world. So from my own um, experience, uh, Zen really drove home for me, uh, particularly the amount of self-deception I engage with in, in some sense in, in using language to try and nail down what's out there and how I should change out there. In, in some sense, I think Zen is kind of an anti-philosophy. And that, that's what appealed to me about it. It's gone the exact other way, um, away from these dialectics. Um, do you see Zen as a, a kind of anti-philosophy in, in that way? Yes and no. I, um, so I think you, when, you, when you mentioned um, dialectics, you know, like dialectics is about uh, and when you're talking about metaphysics, it's tr- trying to resolve some fundamental opposites. Huh? This has played out in 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 Zen. Uh, recently, I've been reading a book. It's really hard to get a hold of, but I'd seen a, a footnote into another book, Tigan. Um, he's he wrote this wonderful book um, about you know, Zen Master Tozan, uh, Tigan Roshi, and. Um, in it, he had a footnote to a book by um, Verdu who was talking about, who laid out essentially a dialectic um, analysis of what um, a particular stream of Buddhism that ended up in Zen. And, and, and it was trying to resolve, you know, really, really fundamental, very, very fundamental opposites like um, unity and difference, emptiness and form, enlightenment, delusion subject and object and so this this went from you know i think about 500 um ad there were a couple of uh sutras the lankavatara sutra and another one awakening of faith of the faith of the mayana where this sort of started and then uh, th- there was this 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 they, they were talking about the liar vision or something this is, has to do you know with with consciousness and and one of the, one of the just to give an example of you know how some these dialectics sort of developed is you know there, there was this this analogy of you know that um, a liar was like, like these seeds of consciousness it's like and and these are represents a unity so you you talk about this metaphor of an ocean right so that that's the the ocean but then on on top of the ocean are these waves and so you can see that the you've got this notion of an ocean that's one this unity. But these waves are like a diversity, and then then um, the sutra says something like the uh, thought centers developed. So these individual uh, waves, you know, the thought center. This is really referring to what I was talking to before about the ego. So these thought centers developed in these individual waves, like thinking that they're different. So that the, so there was this development that went from five hundred through. Uh, I think uh, the Lankavatara sutra, I think, came from. From India, um, but in southern China, they they took these and then they what they were doing, I think, was 
really incredible. Like uh, uh, Tung Miyu was a master. He was a Kigon master. He was sort of like the so sort of almost at the end where this this dialectic these dialectics reached their pinnacle. And, and what they were doing is they were de- de- developing not only uh, sophisticated conceptual frameworks to so address these dialectics, but at the same time they were uh, practicing. So, so what's happening is, and Sung Mi was a, a good example of this. He he was a he was a, a scholar, so he had a lot of scholarly abilities, and he was even almost like an academic at the time. He was writing critiques of different schools of Buddhism, and and then setting out what the advantages and disadvantages of, of each of them were. And he was also developing this sophisticated conceptual framework to fundamentally to 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 deal with this. This thing, or unity versus diversity, or identity and difference, because it's easy to think these are two different things. But how do we unify? Well, subject and object was also a big part of this. And what they came up was was um, in the end was this um, interpenetration. So where the subject interpenetrates with the with the object, and so they had these wonderful diagrams where they where they show about you know there's different. Uh, different symbols and circles, and then they, the way uh, subject represents uh, uh, a black circle and, and um, object, the white circle. You can think black represents uh, unity and white represents diversity, and then they come up with sort of like diagrams of these circles sort of um, intersecting or inter, in, interlocking with each other to try and reflect this interpenetration, but it wasn't. You know, I think this is where the difference is. You, in Western philosophy, if it just stayed at that, it would just be another conceptual framework, right? So with the words and concepts around it, but at the same time, they had well-developed, you know, sitting practices. So what's happening is on the basis of their practice experience, they're directly experiencing this interpenetration. So this is the ultimate, I guess, the you know, the semantics of it. It's, it's rooted in direct experience, which is, which is not, has not happened uh, in the Western church since since after pre-Socratic Socratics, I think were were doing this, but I think after you know, I think when Plato came, it, it all became uh, the plaything of the intellect. I think if you read Parmenides, it's very very enigmatic uh, his teachings and Empedocles also. Uh, but then uh, Plato, I think um, I remember one philosopher, I can't remember who it was, is saying that um, essentially. Um, uh, since Plato, we've, all of what we've been doing is essentially foot, footnotes to Plato for a long, long time. Right. Yeah. But um, in the Western philosophical tradition, then we had um, Husserl and Heidegger who developed it. They, they were interested in what, what is phenomenology is the philosophy of experience. And this is getting closer to what I think the, uh, in say, in the 800s and 900s AD were Tsung Mi. What is the nature of experience? And then uh, in relation to these um, dialectic subject and object, and then it's only re- relatively recent in the West that Husserl and uh, Heidegger and others like that was, were trying to address similar questions. But once again, as far as I know, that wasn't based on any sort of phenomenological practices. And in the academic areas that I work with, you know, there's, there's notions of uh, embodied cognition. And there was a great scholar, um, who, um, Varel, who um, unfortunately died um, before his time. 
uh, he, he was talking about, you know, the embodied cognition, this, this phenomenal being we are, and he, he, he said that the Buddhists have been doing uh, these phenomenal, uh, phenomenological methods for 2,000 years. Mm. So in a way what they were doing was that they were founding these conceptual frameworks based on the, their practice experience. And that's, uh, so that's why it's, uh, it covers both. It's, it's interesting. I, I remember hearing a story on Arthur Schopenhauer, who obviously towards the end of his uh, philosophical career came to very similar conclusions as to, you know, what you call a, a Buddhist conclusion, I suppose. And he actually had a, a, um, a Buddha statue in his house. And uh, he saw uh, Buddhist philosophy as confirmation of his power of reasoning, which I thought was interesting. And it's uh, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, uh, people like that, I think probably came the closest. And, and as you mentioned, Heidegger as well. But you're right, there was never any physical discipline or practice with these guys necessarily. I know Nietzsche obviously talked about it, but there was, there was no method. Um, it, was, it was entirely talking and reasoning. And for me, the power in Zen is that it's actually the opposite. Um, that's where I've found uh, this, this benefit to be, is, is getting away from that. And, and you could look at the world today and, and look at all these, you know, arguments people are having, you know, various conceptual arguments and ideologies that are shaping the way they, they see the world and bringing each other into conflict. I, I think there's a real power in Zen for people to get away from that. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think essentially what happens is that um, you know, I keep going back to this ego, a sense of self. Yeah, our intellect is heavily in, uh, involved with it. So we, we end up developing these habits of beliefs. It, you know, like ego is, is you know, it's a habitual thing. It's based on all sorts of fixations. And then these fixations of belief are just one aspect of it. And the the... The intellect is capable of infinite trickery in this area um, because um, if it's not experientially based, we'll end up um, constructing all sorts of things, um, uh, intellectual constructions, which in the end are just ways clothing for the ego. You know, it's, it's, it's another way for it to keep sustaining itself. And, and, and so I think but the, on the other hand, because I'm a, a scientist, you know, one of the big questions in my, my journey in Zen is really what, what role it all, does the intellect have in it? And, and it, it does, like in, in a sense, the, the intellect allows you, uh, you know, to develop some sort of conceptual understanding, but it really needs to be um, used carefully. Because as I said before, it's capable of infinite trickery. It's an extremely powerful tool, but it's extremely good um, at um, uh, deluding us. And so, and, and at some point, you know, uh, you, know, just, you know, in my case, uh, I, I, because of my scientific training, uh, my first experiences then were very, very conceptual. So, I, you know, I'm so, sort of trying to figure out what enlightenment is and I, wasn't, I didn't notice at the time, but you, you're sort of reading things and you're building up a sort of conceptual map of what uh, enlightenment is and it's linked with certain concepts and then you only get so far and then, oh, okay, and then you move on to something else, uh, emptiness. 
So then you, once again, you start to build this conceptual map, read books about it. And then I just felt that there is, you know, I, I couldn't get, get anywhere. And then I moved a couple of times. And then suddenly I just remember. I just, I just felt that I was at the edge, edge of this cliff and I said, okay, I'm not going to move anymore. I'm just going to sit here. You know, metaphorically, I'm not going to move. And for me, that was uh, in, in, the, in the sort of context of my own practice, this was, a, this was a pivotal point to say, okay, I'm, I'm, this is not going to be an intellectually driven process anymore. And I was, and I mentioned before, a sort of sensitivity had sort of built up in a way I don't know how that allowed me to sort of sense that that was going on. And so that within my own practice, I, uh, in a way, I was uh, addressing. And then when I went to my master with this, you know, he said, ah, your Zen eye is opening. So he, he in, in a way, affirmed that, that, that um, the intellect can take, can help, but uh, so much of it, experience is uh, you know, always um, beyond um, the intellect beyond the concepts. Uh, mm. So the direct experience is, is, is crucial. Sure, yeah, sure. I guess people know that in their own lives as well. I mean, you can go and study something, but until you, you know, actually go and do it, I mean, you kind of don't really know, do you, as such. It's, um, it's, it seems like the most obvious thing in the world in, in many ways. Yeah, um, and, and also some texts when you look at really, really... Um, you know, spiritual writings are the ones that they, they some Zen texts are like this, but you know, I mentioned Parmenides and other, the, the, the way it's written, it, it's, it's really quite enigmatic the way that they write things down. And I always felt that this is a device, uh, these, these careful, and Zen Master Dorgan is the same. The way they write um, is in a way enigmatic so that our intellect uh, doesn't have too many hooks to to grab hold of it and start believing it understands it. And even Aristotle, I think, uh, a couple hundred years later, was complain, complaining about, I don't know whether it was Empedocles or Parmenides, he was saying that they were totally unclear what they were trying to say. But I think uh, um, the, the way they were writing is 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 in such a way so that we, that um, it's sort of, they're compassionate to us so that our intellects can't, can't grab hold of them too easy, and those that have a sense within them for what's behind the words, it will resonate with them, and so then then they can um, sort of go with the with those surface level texts, which will then start to permeate into deeper levels in their being and then ultimately their practice. It's uh, yeah, it's interesting. I I don't know how familiar you are with um, internet culture, but there's there's actually a, a funny uh, meme where someone's uh, digitally given a, a chimpanzee a machine gun in a village and um, he starts shooting the place up because obviously the chimpanzee can't possibly conceive of how dangerous the machine gun is. I always like that metaphor for um, language and concept. It's extremely um, powerful. I, I think people underestimate the ability... Um, language gives you to just completely deceive yourself in so many ways. For myself, um, what, what I noticed is that a lot of irrational desires 
are rooted in my body and, and my unconscious, just to use language, I suppose it's not really what's happening. But what, what language gave me was, was an excellent ability to justify myself or to construct motivations uh, for why I was behaving in a certain way. But all the time I was kind of completely missing, uh, you know, the, the essence of it all. Um, so just to change things up a bit, I, I remember last year at Seshin, um, you were talking about awareness. And this was quite a mind-blowing uh, speech that you gave. I, I was somewhat flabbergasted. I must say it was, um, it was so uh, lucid. Um, and you were talking about people training awareness these days with internet apps and, um, you know, awareness training courses as if you're on a kind of boot camp in a way. And you're, you're kind of commenting on the um, silliness, but um, I suppose the uh, them missing the point or, or missing the point of, of doing that somewhat. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that a little bit because that was, you know, very useful for me in my own practice. Yes, mindfulness came out of um, Buddhism and Buddhist practices and, and Thich Nhat Hanh is an example of how that he's done uh, fantastic, uh, found fast, fantastic ways to convey that uh, to the West and and then it sort of came into psychology and then it's um, what i what i feel is that um see they, they turn awareness in, into something like a like a tool like so it's something that we can use as a tool and then for example when you know, we're feeling scattered or whatever unclear then we can grab hold of this tool and we'll use it and training with this tool yeah uh, we can um, get better at awareness yeah, like uh, I guess if you're you like tennis and you keep training to serve well, it's 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 a it's 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 a style of thinking, but it's it's totally um, inappropriate to awareness. Awareness is not something because usually when we say we're we're aware, we're aware of something, but um, awareness itself is not something. But what this these sorts of um, tra- turn they objectify awareness into something. And when it's objectified, awareness is, this is not awareness anymore. So when, when, when we say aware of, this is usually what happens, we, we say we're aware of some, some phenomena. Maybe I'm aware of the cup in front of me or the computer screen in front of me. Uh, and then maybe we attend to it. And then if we feel that um, we can uh, focus our attention long enough on things, that we're getting better at awareness, this is all, this is n- not, not a way. We can't say, really, we can't say what awareness is. It, it, it's, it's not a something. So one of the, um, you know, there's this old story that comes to mind. Um, you know, there was a Zen master, Gensha, and... Um, uh, a monk came to him and um, asked him something like, um, uh, he wanted to practice him, practice with him because um, he was a well-known master. And the monk said, asked him, so which, through which gate can I enter to practice 
with you. So you imagine he's uh, arriving at, a, at his monastery. He's not asking about a physical gate. This is a metaphoric gate. What, what, through which gate should I enter in order to practice with you? Or another way to say it is, you know, another way to, to think about it is it through, you know, through, through which gate can I practice Zen? And then um, Zen Master Gensha was silent. Uh, and then he replied to the monk, can, can you hear the sound of the stream? Because there was a stream nearby, a creek, the sound of the water. And then the uh, the monk stopped. You know, he, When masters ask these questions, this is not flippant, the way they asked them. And the monk was stopped. So his busy mind was stopped, you know, and he could hear the sound. And then uh, uh, Sir Master Gensha said, there is a way to enter or enter through there. So what, what happens is that this, this sound, usually we hear sounds, but we're done away with them so quickly. We're, we're endowed with all these senses, and, but we hardly really ever use them. But this sort of listening, when, when, when we really, really hear, so what is, what is it that's listening? So there was a, a wonderful, this is a wonderful question in Zen, what is it that's listening? Right, so when, when our ego is in the way, our normal senses, we can't listen. We're not, essentially, we're not aware. We're not awake. So everything's so indirect. We, everything is uh, explicitly or implicitly separate. But when this listening in this exchange here, this is, a, this is an encounter. The monk encountered the sound. This sound uh, went through his being. So this is this is a, a, a moment of, of awareness, and so what what is the difference? As before I, I said we're usually aware of something, but you know, um, what we what we usually uh, miss is where we're not aware of that which is hearing. So we hear something and we turn it into an object, or we label it, and do away with it quickly. But there is this awakened silence that is listening. Uh, and um, what is it listening to? There's a wonderful question to uh, a Zen master in that Chinese Zen master, Baijong. He gave a wonderful response. What, what is it that, that is listening? And he said that it's the awakened nature of hearing is hearing awakened nature. So what it means is that awareness is awake to itself as awareness as that phenomena. So this is this goes, but so so this this uh, this awareness encounter. My master always said that when this awareness encounter is is has doesn't have anything to do with something. It's a, a direct direct experience of just this awareness. Where there is no somethings involved, just pure, just pure direct awareness. Awareness being awake to itself as awareness, and this is to go back to this um, interpenetration between subject and object. So, what these interpenetrate? So, one v one one 
view is to, to see the subject that is listening is awareness itself. It is a, you can imagine, awakened silence for that phenomena to arrive. That's the first part. That's subjective emptiness. So there's no sense of self. So this is a, this field of awareness has this infinite capacity to allow whatever phenomena can arrive, like the sound of the creek in this case. So this is, uh, this is the uh, subjective entity, this is awareness, this is the, the subject, it's our real subject is this field of awareness uh, that is arising with that which is aware of. And this is the, uh, in this case, the sound. But the second part of the interpenetration goes to the other way, because that which is aware of is awareness itself. So it's not something. So, so in Buddhism, they say the dharmas are illusory or empty. So the sound isn't something substantial. When you, when you look at when this awareness sees itself, it sees itself as that sound, as awareness itself. So we have this loop. To maybe put it in a simple way, in order the, for awareness, it's not perceiving something, but we, we need to perceive that which is perceiving or hear that which is hearing. Our direction needs to go the other way. And usually we foreground our awareness outwards, but it needs to go back to see where, what is it that is perceiving? Perceive that which is perceiving. There's a wonderful expression in, in Zen, the eye that sees itself is like this. I always remember a wonderful exchange, uh, you know, um, with Mother Teresa you know, that, that touches on this awareness, seeing itself, this awakened silence, hearing itself. Um, someone asked her, you know, because you know, she's praying all the time, She had that, that person had the temerity to ask her, what are, you, what are you doing in your prayers? And she said, I'm listening to God. And the person had the further temerity to ask, well, what, what is he saying to you? And she said, he's listening too. This is such a profound, beautiful Actually, what I was just trying to point to. Mm. So this, this is, so this is uh, using words and many, many words. But this is the uh, awareness. This is not. So this is why it's beyond words. Mm. It's not. It, it's not something that can be uh, trained. It's there. This is our awakened being. We are that, and moment by moment, encounter by encounter, we we arise. Uh, as awareness, and that's what we're encountering is also awareness. This is a, this is the fundamental interpenetration that we, took me and others and Zen Master Torzain in their teaching, we need to practice that. We need to experience this directly, on the basis of our practice experience, and that then we uh, then, then then we um, realize that there's nothing that can be trained. And the the tricky, yeah. I think, in, with you know, I've been teaching now. You know, for more than 10 years. And this thing about awareness, so what happens, the tricky thing about awareness here is that this awareness is in this encounter, that encounter of the sound, or people feel that they have that experience. And so quickly, they say, how can I keep it? So this, such an awareness is a discontinuity, in fact. But very, very quickly, the ego intellect kicks in, well, how can, how can I keep that? And then what we do is we place awareness into a continuum. 
So continual awareness, to, to me, this is, uh, doesn't make sense. Awareness never extends beyond this. Now, it can't. So uh, we don't we don't talk. It's senseless to talk about awareness in a continuum. But it's more like it's a discontinuity of continuities. So encounter by awareness, encounter by awareness, encounter. We are being born as that awareness. Whatever we encounter, if if we are sensitive enough to see that this is what's going on, this this is uh, uh, awareness. So profound insight. There's a lot to unpack there, and yet there's nothing to unpack. I think I might have to listen to that a couple of times. But um, it's it's interesting. It makes me think that in in the Western outlook, uh, in the Western liberal outlook, perhaps you know someone like John Locke, for example, external or freedom for him or or for us is a removal or you know loosening of external constraints. And that allows the ego, I suppose, to extend outwards unconstrained. But from what I'm hearing here, Zen is offering something completely different. And that's the internal point of freedom through that realization of awareness. Because at that point, there is no subject, there is no self in the way. We can't, we can't have such a, we can't listen to the sound of that creek. If we're in the way, mm. and th- this is why th- this is to go back to the question: what, what is life? When when we are sensitive enough, that when we are humble enough, then life wants to arise. It arises and through us. So we are these empty clearings for these phenomena to arise, and our job is to get out of the way so that they can arrive freely and fully and not crippled. By having some in sense of self-construction or in the way that cripples them, so so we we are essentially life is trying to complete itself through us. Life is seeing itself through us. It's hearing itself through us, uh, but not not when our ego's in the way. Mm. This, this is uh, very very fundamental. Sure. One one of the accusations I've heard people level. At Buddhism in general, but particularly Zen, is that it's nihilistic in some way. But I, I keep trying to explain to them that it's it's anything but. And I, you know, I think um, it's almost an, a, an embrace of being on a level um, that is uh, intrinsic to our existence in some way. Yeah, and and the universe, universe wanting to arrive. Through our life is wanting to arrive through us. It's tr- trying to. This potential is always wanting to manifest. It, it's we, our being is this, it's this huge, huge awakened silence, which uh, allows this. But usually, our experiences you know, just our life is so cluttered. We we we're our our attention or consciousness is in the foreground in amongst many many different. Phenomenal objects in our daily lives, and of course, we we and at some level we need to deal with that sort of reality. That's a part of being human. But we get stuck in there in that foreground, and we we don't realise the background. So this this wonderful I read Korean Zen book 
a wonderful definition of awareness. It goes like this. Awareness is the awareness and attentiveness to that which is bright and never obscured. And notice how it's circular. So awareness, it first starts with a definition, awareness is, and then it says awareness and attentiveness. So awareness is being defined in terms of itself, which which must be because it's uh, in language we can't cope with the unity of it. So we need a circular definition in in a language sense in order to appropriately express it. Zen Master Tozan had it in his first two ranks of his teachings, the phenomena in the real, the real in the phenomena. He could say the phenomena in awareness. That's the first rank. And then awareness in the phenomena. So this is the dialectics. We're getting reversed. And we need to, by uh, directly experiencing both qualities, this is where we we understand Sugami's interpenetration between the awareness and the phenomena, because the, the, these these go hand in hand. It's awareness and the phenomena, emptiness and form. So at a logical level, they're, um, they're polar opposites in a way. But how we uh, dialectically, in the basis of practice experience, how we, we, we must experience the inner penetration of them. I think it can be quite confronting for people because I suppose if you accept or experience these things on some level, you can apply it also to yourself um, to see the self as a, a kind of construction in some way, something that is phenomenological, um, which can be quite confronting for the modern Western mind who is completely attached uh, to the ego and acting out, uh, you know, the whims of this, this uh, self-perception. Sometimes what happens, though, is I've seen this uh, again and again uh, on session. People are practicing. And what what happens is that um, when people start to settle down in their practice, um, the ego um, doesn't like this and can get fearful because uh, it senses that um, this is wide-handing its existence big time. Uh, and uh, it, it devises all sorts of tricks in order to sustain sustain its um, central stage position uh, in the life of the practitioner. Uh, so uh, it, it is. It's um, we, we even in the end the phenomena is the, the the ego is just another phenomenon. But for some reason, it's it's been given this special importance. And so it so much hinges from it's got, it's it's, be, it's become the um, the um, star of the show that particular phenomenon, but it's just a phenomenon. And I asked my master about this. So do you ever you know because I thought well do you ever have you know, like uh, your ego or something? And then he just replied simply, "Oh yeah, yeah, sometimes cloud of self." Right. So and then so so his experience. Okay, sometimes he sees his self as a particular cloud that's appearing in this background spaciousness and it appears and then it's gone. Uh, and that's a really different way of, uh, of experience because usually uh, we identify with it. And we're, once we do that, we're lost. We're in amongst the story again and we're, we're, we're just dreaming. Yeah, so I don't know whether that makes much sense. No, it makes total sense. He's he's almost inverted the experience. Then, in some way, he's 
kind of become awareness and he sees, you know, the ego as, as a kind of, you know, I suppose a blemish for lack of a better word. And he's, he's reversed uh, the experience of the, you know, individuals like myself and, uh, you know, uh, people that are not as uh, well-trained. I, I just wanted to, to go, you're obviously a physicist, you're in science. In terms of awareness, do, do you see any similarities between, you know, quantum mechanical theory and this kind of conception of awareness that, that you've been speaking about? Uh, yeah, so um, just, uh, I'm not a physicist. I, I, I do a lot in um, cognitive psychology, but we use quantum physics to understand uh, human cognition. Sure. So I've got a, I've got a lot of... Um, training in um, quantum physics. Um, there are some quite intriguing parallels between um, what was going on around Tsumi's time in terms of these dialectics around subject and object and, and what happened in quantum physics. Because it, what they, um, when they started measuring uh, quantum particles, uh, it Sort of, it came across as that um, the way you, when you measure a quantum particle, you, you actually create it, uh, and um, the act of measurement itself is manifesting, I said, the reality of the quantum particle. And this, um, at the time, this um, started. There was some debate, so there was some speculation that um, quantum physics might be able to shed some light on subject-object duality, which is what, as I mentioned before, Sung Mi, you know, what they were going to is, is this question of subject and object. And so the, uh, so the experiences or the experiments in quantum physics were um, starting to raise questions about, about that. Uh, because before then, um, it, it was an issue. Because when you, when you sort of, in classical physics, when you measure something, essentially what you assume is that the, the object is out there. So it's, pre, it, it's out there even when you're not, not looking at it. And it's got a well-established property like and with a value. So that, you know, when we're not looking at the moon, for example, it's got a, its mass as a certain value. And that value is, doesn't really change whether we're looking at it or not or who's looking at it. But that, that, that doesn't happen in the quantum realm. And then this is one of the reasons why you know, the, the spec, the, there was this thing. It's like the act of measurement creates the reality of the particle, it manifests it. And this, the Einstein had problems with this. this is, he had this wonderful quip. He said, I like to think the moon is still there when I'm not looking at it. Because he, um, he, he, he was a realist, right? And then um, Schrodinger uh, was one that I really um, appreciated because he was of the founding fathers of quantum theory. He, he was really, really, I think, quite radical in the way he was willing to think about things. And I remember reading um, to some of his lectures, I think, um, in the 1940s, and he, he wrote this wonderful article about called The Principle of Objectivation, and he was essentially talking about the scientific method. And he's saying, well, when we're doing that, we step back and as, a, as an observer uh, to look at something. He said, by that very process, objective reality is born. 
Right. So, so you notice that, that this is completely different to what uh, classical uh, science would say. He said, by that very process of stepping back as an observer, the world of objects is born. So he's really talking about this is how the, the subject-object separation develops. So his whole article is about that. And then at the end, he, he had this really, really, um, you know, to me, was striking um, sort of conclusion. He, he said... He said the recent developments in, say, in science, though he's referring to quantum physics, uh, that there has been some talk that it might shed some light on the age-old problem of subject-object duality. Essentially, he said it can't because he said subject and object are one. There, there is no such duality. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it, right? So that, that someone you know, like a, a Nobel Prize winner would speak uh, like a Zen master on this. They're, they're subject and object are, are one. They interpenetrate fully. And uh, I had to uh, I had to send an email to Michel Bitbol, who's a he's a professor in in France, who's an expert on Schrödinger's philosophy. And I said, uh, this sounds like, well, you know, what they say in Zen in Buddhism. And then he said, yeah, Schrödinger was well versed with the Upanishads and uh, also the non-duality schools of Hinduism. He was reading these things. And that it was affecting his his worldview. So that's just one example of of, of how, like um, this issue of subject object duality, which was has been studied and practiced, as I said before, you know, with Sung Mi and um, looking at interpenetration of subject or object. Now, in in quantum physics, this sort of popped up as well, and. Um, and someone like Schrodinger um, took a, a really, really radical position on it. And I had to ask um, Bitball, I said, well, ha- what, what did his colleagues say? Because you imagine this. At that stage when he's right, he's already got the Nobel Prize in physics, right? And he's, um, his exalted position in the history of the science is already assured. And I said, what, what did other physicists think of those sort of views? He said, well, uh, they either frowned or they ignored it. Uh, so not even Schrodinger could really get away with um, saying those sort of things. But this is where you can see signs of where quantum physics is cutting across into um, into Zen. That's just one of a, a few that I've encountered along the way. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. <laughs> I um I, I recall uh, in the Vedas, I think it was the Rig Veda, um, a discussion of breath as being the all. Um, this this concept is obviously uh, very important in Zen. How, how do you, you know, conceptualize that? Obviously, I believe it's called hara in um, in Zen practice, isn't it? That's the uh, practice of uh, deep abdominal breathing that that forms a very important part of of zazen. This is something that I've always found mystifying. That that all is breath and when I was in session, I, I kind of had some strong experiences that all of a sudden this started to make sense. Did, did, your, did your concepts help you? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. This is, this is the experience. So when, when, we, uh, uh, when we are humble enough and sensitive enough, what we can experience is 
this one breath. So it's um, arriving from some unknown depths. What's what's arriving? It's not not a a breath. But yeah, you can. Ah, it's like a wave. Awareness is arriving. Borderless. It's the all the the whole whole universe is now arriving as this incoming breath. That's the that's the all. Uh, just this breath. This is my master always said. The only thing we can practice in Zazen is this one breath awareness only. He didn't say this one breath. This one breath awareness. It's all right. and then. The exhale, and then when we breathe, what, what is breathing out? It's not us. Ah, oh, we can see our awareness, that all. That awareness all is breathing out. So breathing in awareness, the all. Uh, awareness breathing out. This, uh, this can be verified on the, base, on the basis of our experience. What, what is in those sutras? Do, do Zen Buddhists take the sutras seriously? I, I do have a quote here by Master uh, Hogan. And I was going to ask you um, about this before. Sorry, Master Dogen, rather. Um, he, he said that anyone who would regard Zen as a school or a sect of Buddhism and call it Zen Shu or Zen school is a devil. Um, and in that respect, um, I suppose they probably don't spend an inordinate amount of time on sutras. But I have also heard that some Zen masters absolutely do uh, have, um, you know, a good knowledge of sutras and, and do expound on them in, in various capacities. Is, um, is that the case? Or um, do you look at sutras in the traditionalist Buddhist sense that much? What do you mean in a strict Buddhist sense? I suppose other forms of Buddhism, more doctrinal forms, would you know, spend a lot of time on sutras, um, a lot of time on discourse of sutras. Is that a feature of, of Zen in general? Um, I, I can't. So I can't say in Zen in in general, um, but in my training that I've experienced. Um, the way the sutras are used, uh, extension of the uh, practice. So when you are on sashin, so when we chant the sutra, I I, I just chanting, just chanting the direct experience of chanting. So when we do that, there's not me who's chanting; it's just chanting itself. So it doesn't matter if we're chant, chanting in Japanese or English, but if we're sitting thinking, uh, okay, reading, wondering what the texts are, then we then we can't experience the sutra, the chanting of it. This is this is what my master taught this way, and sometimes he would get technical questions, you know, some of the uh, ten grade precepts and some technical Buddhist questions, and then he. He replied once, I remember, he said, oh, my, my master taught me Zen, he didn't teach me Buddhism. 
So in a way, this is the Zen way of um, dealing with the sutras. Some, so as other teachers in open way, they um, read the sutras and they study them and they use them in in Dharma talks. Uh, and uh, um, some masters uh, use exchanges, koans, exchanges between master and disciple from centuries ago. And sometimes they use these, these aren't sutras, but Zen often uses these exchanges as the basis of uh, of a talk. But the a real, a real talk is not talking about it. A, a real master, you can see a real master, Zen master, when they embody it, they embody that experience, they embody the life in those words. And this is, I think, is a different. So, if you if we were talking about it, sutras, and you, people get bored really easily, because when we're talking about something, it's this is all once again we're outside of the direct experience. We're back into intellectual stuff. So, this this is the way I I learnt in my own practice with sutras. It's the practice of them each time when we chant, uh, I chant. Mindfully, uh, not to be distracted, just chant uh, the sutra, experience it Mm. that way. For me, during that experience, I I think that's an excellent way to put it. As as soon as I tried to reason or rationalize what I was reading, that's when it all seemed to go wrong. But when I was in that flow state and I was, even if it was in Japanese, reading off the page, that that experience of that momentariness was where I found the significance as well. It it was funny during session, I I had numerous experiences of that, um, of this kind of, as you said, trickery that the ego plays on you um, during that whole thing. And that, that was another great example. I see a lot of Buddhists online and people like that get into long arguments on doctrine and these definitions and, and all these kinds of things. And I, I often just uh, take a step back and I'm somewhat amazed at it. I feel like uh, they've completely missed the point to some degree. Yeah, um, yeah that's what I learned from my mate. Like he, he um, I, I don't know, he, I didn't see reading sort of sutras, but he, he would read Zen Master Dogen, for example. But um, may, maybe only one one phrase or one sentence uh, he would underline. And then he that would be something, I think this is how in our own practice, this is how the sutras can be helpful. It's not about going from front to back. In a way, the, sutra, the sutras will find us. Well, the teachings will find us at the appropriate time. There may be only, often this is one sentence. Suddenly there's something very intriguing about it. And then we can use that as a prime for our practice to uh, try to penetrate uh, the real meaning behind that, but not in a, a, a sutra theoretical way, but in on the on, we give it real meaning, uh, an organic meaning based on the practice uh, on our own practice experience. And this is this is in Doxan. This is really sharing. It's clarifying like this. Uh, so sutras can have primes, and there are many many piles and piles and sutras. But really, 
you know, we went back to this one breath. I think Organson said once, if you, if you really understand this one breath awareness, then you've understood all the sutras. Amazing claim, eh? Truly amazing, yeah. Really amazing. But it makes total sense. I mean, Buddhism by its, by its very definition is beyond concept and, and word, so happy to possibly be anything but that moment of breath and, and awareness. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> to, to view it any other way. If you were to um, give people advice who wanted to get started in this practice, what's a good way to go about it, you know, to, to avoid some of the pitfalls that maybe just you went through and described earlier, uh, some of them that I know I went through? Is, is there a, a good way to, to go about it to start with? I think uh, it's it's imp- if you start to really try like these very very basic instructions about how to sit in zazen to really just follow them to but and 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 because uh, I've seen time and time again and also in my own practice what we try to do is we try to engineer it. This is our egos again. We try to engineer our practice in certain ways. Um, we, we need to follow those instructions and have faith in them, and uh, and and not not to expect anything. I think th- this is so very very. Um, I think there's a very very strong conditioning that I see in a lot of practitioners. They come to practice and then. They they want to get something out of it, but if we, you know, this is part of the almost like the paradox. Uh, it's 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 that sort of thinking which is at the root of our ego, because um, we, there's nothing to get out of it. We 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 just do it. The the fundamental thing is just doing this one breath. There's no agenda for it. And just to experience that life arising, no agenda. There's nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to struggle for, nothing to keep. There's nothing to construct. There's nothing to do, nothing to think about. It, but it's it's to be wary of all the somethings. Our, our lives are driven by the somethings, but the Zen is about, like I said, nothing. And then there's tremendous freedom in that uh, because all those things I mentioned are really um, the realm of our ego selves which are driving, driving us in all sorts of directions in our lives. But when we're humble enough uh, just to expect nothing, just this one sitting, one doing, not only sitting one step in uh, walking meditation or when we doing things outside. Whatever we encounter, just do, do that simply, meet it fully, mindfully. So this, this, I think this attitude is important and, 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 not, and not, not to expect because uh, expectations easily lead to disappointment which leads to moving on to something else. 
in this sense, Zen training is, is, is really difficult because we have a strong conditioning to or for that sort of thinking. It's a, uh, it's, it's a hard discipline. It's, uh, and for that reason, it's so valuable because um, I suppose in my own case, at least, having a, a mind of um, the modern age, um, that, that kind of discipline is kind of what's required to, uh, to really have that experience. But as you say, it's, it's a big pitfall to, to have that expectation that something is going to happen. Um, that you're sitting there waiting for something to happen, which I was very much prone to during session. Um, it was one of the the biggest um, delusions that I had probably, or, or, or p- traps that I kept falling back into during that experience. Yeah, this is common. Like many people come and they think, well, when I, my colleagues would say, oh, where'd you go? I said, I was a whole week on um, meditation. Oh, that must have been so peaceful. And I, no, this, these sort of things happen. But the fact that you that you saw that, this is the thing. Once we start seeing how our mind, our egos uh, are driving us towards it, so we can get. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of the method. You said there's nowhere to go. Like uh, all the timings don't taken care of. So all you can do is really sit there with what's going on in in our being. And suddenly we'll see, feel frustration or disappointment. And, uh, okay, then we can either react to that, but also if we look more closely, what, what, where, why, where is that disappointment really coming from? And it's rooted in this expectation. I'll get something out. But the irony is that when we drop all of that, we, um, we can meet fully what's always been given. That um, that awareness uh, that is uh, bright and never obscured, we can, we meet it, and it's a, and it's it's not a something. We it, we we meet as what whatever is we meet now. Uh, so it's it's never what we expected. This is never ex- what we expected to be, or what we think it to be. Uh, life is uh, mysterious. Yeah, it's um, a far cry from uh, from uh, the way that they frame it often with these meditation apps and um, optimization. And uh, this will make you, you know, uh, excellent at work or you know whatever it is. It's uh, almost in that frame. It's no wonder people don't continue through with it because in some sense they're starting from the incorrect point to begin with. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. that's right. Like, uh, one, one of the, my favourite expressions from my master, he, he, say, he used to say, nothing to get is better than any enlightenment. And that reflects the humility that, that's at the basis of it all. A, a humble simplicity of... Um, this awareness and can be something very, very ordinary. It's never we never know in advance. Yeah, well, that's. I think that's an excellent note um, to end this on. Um, that's uh, a lot of material there, uh, Peter, to think about and um, to try and integrate to into, into practice. Um, I'm sure the listeners 
I'm very appreciative of your perspective. That was uh, something else. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, doing this. Yeah, thanks, uh, Alex, for, for the opportunity. And, um, yeah, I found it a very meaningful and worthwhile uh, discussion. And, and thank you for inviting me to share uh, whatever it was. It's a pleasure. Yeah.